you not only our heads, but we pray and trust our hearts to you as our great God and our creator, our redeemer, the one who has reconciled us to yourself through Christ, through your own son and our Lord Jesus, you who were that reconciler by coming and bearing our sin and Holy Spirit, you applying the work of Christ and gathering us in as the people of God, the children of God, made new and ready for our eternal home. We pray now as we take time to read your living word together and consider it, that you would be our teacher, that you would help us both in our understanding and, Lord, in how it should shape and renew our minds to think rightly about ourselves and the world around us and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would you prepare our hearts as we come to this table to rejoice and to delight in all that you are for us as our Savior. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, why don't you go ahead and prepare this morning uh, by opening up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Uh, just to give you an overview here, we are, of course, we have the last church in Revelation that we are uh, going to get to, I promise. But we'll probably get to the, that either the last week of, uh, of December or uh, the first week of January. Actually, I think January 1st is uh, in four weeks. So... Anyway, we will get back to that after the first of the year, but before then, we're going to take a little bit of an excursion in, in the book of Romans, and primarily the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Now, obviously, we tend to go a little slower here uh, as we walk through some books, so this is going to be an overview. This isn't going through every detail, but it is to try to, try to set in our mind a big picture of certain things that have been on my heart, particularly in this as I was wrestling with uh, where to go, uh, I kept being driven back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And the thing that has been on my heart, uh, really, is uh, how we understand what's going on in our nation. How do we understand what's going on in our world around us? How do we explain it? Well, really, only a Christian worldview can make sense of it. It doesn't make it easier to live through it. Uh, but it does make it make sense. It makes it understandable. It makes it comprehensible because we understand the condition the world is in since the fall of man. And there are certainly many things that provoke us as Christians, many things that provoke us as Christians because they stand so opposed and they're so contradictory to what is good, to what is beautiful, to what is holy, but even ultimately to what is for God's glory. And those things are all together. What is for God's glory is also what is beautiful, what is good, and what is holy, what is righteous. And we see that more and more and more and more being diminished, being dishonored, uh, and being outright rejected. And it's not by any logical argument either, by nothing but blind passion, irrationality, and foolishness. So just a few, uh, recently, not that these are recent things, but it just hit me in a new way, I'd say, over the last few months. One, and we've already addressed this in some different points uh, over the last months and year, but, and certainly last week, but the LGBTQ agenda, which took uh, a new step forward, which has massive implications for us in the Respective Marriage Act that was just passed and will soon be enacted into law. Of course, that is a misnomer. It's a 1984 kind of phrase in which the title means exactly the opposite of what it actually is. 
It is not a respect for marriage, but has often been said many times, it is a disrespect for marriage. It is a rejection of marriage as God has designed it. But marriage is by definition now of the U.S. government, I did read the bill, it's short, is this, is between two individuals, not between a man and a woman, but between two individuals, however they may identify It is a direct consequence of the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage and made it no longer between a man and a woman, a union that can produce children and establish a home and a family, but between any two people, even of the same gender, who decide to go under the false idea that they are married. It's now intensified, however, in this new Respect of Marriage Act by intensifying that decision. And it is a forthright appeal of the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, which sought to preserve that reality of marriage as between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. While a religious exemption was included, it's really an empty attempt at protection, which has been built on a very flimsy ground and a sand foundation. Once the legitimacy of same-sex marriage is both culturally accepted and then enshrined in legislation and in law, it is a very short step to knock down the straw walls and defenses of any kind of amendment to the bill. It's coming, and it's inevitable. We have the abortion agenda, which beside all the horrendous statistics of abortion, and for many years has included even late-term abortion, abortions all the way up to the point of birth, so a child just about to be born can be killed in the womb, and that is considered freedom. But it found even a new trajectory uh, in the California Bill 223, which is a movement in in the direction of no prosecution or investigation for children who die after birth. So essentially infanticide up to a certain age is saying that there will be no criminal investigation. We have now what is also gaining more and more steam is the agenda of euthanasia. Canada has some of the most, world's most permissive euthanasia laws. They are not the only country with euthanasia laws, but they are becoming a forerunner, a frontrunner in that agenda. Uh, the AP News reported that many Canadians support euthanasia and the advocacy group Dying with Dignity says the procedure is driven by compassion and end to suffering and discrimination and desire for personal autonomy. And that is certainly more true than they know to say personal autonomy. The criteria, what it's amounting to and it actually is, is really no more than anybody who feels they are under distress. Certainly uh, the the main people who have uh, participated in this uh, self-assisted suicide are those with terminal illness and cancer, but also it's now included to mean uh, any anguish. As a matter of fact, one statistic that's quickly increasing of those who decide to commit euthanasia are those who simply have economic struggles because of the high cost of housing and so forth. Those with mental disabilities or whatever are also prime candidates, but even now, even young children. It was said, this one report went on to say that next year, this was written earlier this year in 2022, so next year the country is set to allow people to be killed exclusively for mental health reasons. Now we all know that mental health reasons are anything that that somebody says causes them distress or unhappiness. The country is set to allow people to be killed exclusively for mental health reasons. It is also considering extending euthanasia to quote-unquote mature minors, children under 18 who meet the same requirements as adults. In terms of a nation, 
then the rejection of God results necessarily in the loss of the value of human life, which is shown in each of these things. It results in chaos, a sort of moral insanity that has no anchor, no mooring, nothing to ground it in something that is consistent or true or transcendent or that could shape the mindset of a people for flourishing and for good. It's a loss of value of life. Life has only the value that any culture and any reigning power within that culture assigns to it. And we see examples of that throughout history. And that assignment of value can have any kind of motivation such as political primarily or whatever it is that they decide gives it value. But it has no inherent value on its own. One has commented this way. History demonstrates that nations that forsake God lose their concern for the rights of the individual. To forsake God is to forsake his creatures. A national policy, as a national policy, atheism grinds its people under the collective hell of what's best for society. And what's best for society and those kind of things are to get rid of old people. They're a drain financially. They're no good. To get rid of disabled people, they're a drain. Who wants that? They need to be killed in the womb or out of the womb. To get rid of those who cause any kind of suffering and aren't productive contributors to society, they need to be killed. They need to be gotten rid of. It's, it's a form of population control and control in general. And so we see these things even in our own nation that are increasing Increasing, a celebration of death, a rejection of the inherent value of all human life, and even as a fundamental part of that as well, the destruction of the family, which is where many of these things, particularly in the sexual arena, are geared towards. A destruction of the family, a demolishing of any sense of moral order, which ultimately then removes any protection of children, and they become ultimately the victims of this kind of destructive agenda. Even as we saw just briefly with transgenderism is sort of the front runner of that. Who are the, who are the ones who suffer from that? It's children. Who are the ones that lose the protection of their family? It's children. Who are the ones who are subjected by experiment and justification for the worst kind of agenda to all kinds of horrendous things? It's children. It's children. And we're seeing that increase, increase to where now it's even exalted as freedom and good to let drag queens dance seductively in front of kindergartners. But that's where we are as a nation. So how do we understand that? How do we understand that? How do we bring the gospel and how do we have confidence in the gospel as the church who is called to be a light to the world in that kind of environment? How are we to process that? What is a biblical worldview that can give, to put that somehow into God's program and under God's sovereignty and ultimately something that will end for God's glory? How are we to think about it? Well, we can only think about it rightly if we think about it in the light of Scripture and in the light of God's Word as God tells us why things are the way that they are, what His ultimate purpose is in in them, and ultimately what He will do to bring about what was promised to us even in the Gospel or even in the book of Isaiah that His kingdom will be established in justice and righteousness in His Messiah. But clearly, clearly that is not happening now. So how are we to think about it? Well, one passage that helps us along that way is found in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans. And particularly what we'll look at over the next three weeks, culminating in three weeks into an understanding of God's providing for us an escape in the hope of righteousness in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in verses 21 uh, to the end of the chapter. But how are we to understand that? Well, it's a long passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. What we're going to do this morning is look primarily at verses 18 through 32. We'll pick it up at chapter 2 down to the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 20 next week. And then we'll look, uh, probably it'll land on Christmas Day, the atonement of Christ and the work of Christ on our behalf. We're familiar with this passage. Many of us know verse 18 uh, very well. Uh, verse 18 comes to us as a reminder as a, or even as a first instance of, God, of Paul beginning to unfold to him uh, his ministry of the gospel, of the gospel. And what he does is he provides for us in verse 18 what will be the first point, the certainty of judgment. So we'll look at the certainty of judgment, the causes of judgment, and the consequences of judgment And so he provides for us then the certainty of judgment. And he opens with these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now as I've already alluded to or mentioned, that this is the beginning of a section that's going to run all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3. So from 118 to the verse to chapter 20 or verse 20 of chapter 3. And what Paul is doing is he is establishing the contrast to the gospel of God, the gospel of God in Christ, the righteousness of God that is the possession of those who have by faith responded to the good news of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In verses 18 through 32, there's an emphasis primarily on the depravity of man within the Gentile community. And then in, beginning in chapter 2 down to verse 20 of 3, there's an emphasis on the apostasy of the Jewish nation and their own guilt. And all of this then provides the backdrop to that glorious promise of what he said right before this section in verse 16. Well, really verse 15. I am I part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That is the introduction to this section. That is the, this is the introduction to the environment in which that message went out of which Paul is not ashamed. It is the backdrop, if you will, of the power of God to be displayed in redeeming a people for himself and accomplishing all of his good purposes. And what is the backdrop? It is that men abide, humanity outside of Christ abides under the wrath of God. Notice in verse 18, he begins, for, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. He is again explaining by contrast, the righteous man shall live by faith and he needs to live by faith in what God has done because outside of that faith, this is the condition that he's in. This is the condition that all men and all humanity is in. He says, so for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And this brings us face to face with the reality that is often neglected and rarely proclaimed in the church. If we were to do a scan, as it were, of, of sermons and the kind of message that we get at least popularly on 
TV and or any other representative, we would almost forget that there is this reality of condemnation. And we would almost forget the reality that the cross was necessary because there was a real guilt that needed to be atoned for and removed from humanity. But Scripture does not let us forget that, but in fact says it's a necessary beginning point to understand the wonder and the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, this will not be a full explanation on it, but let me just give an overview of this very idea of the wrath that he is talking about. The wrath of God that is revealed. First of all, what is wrath? What is wrath? Well, here's a helpful definition that pretty much sums it up. I'm borrowing, quote, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being, that is, His infinite, holy, majestic being, who He is in Himself as God. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction to His holiness. So in other words, wrath is the response of a holy God against all that is not holy, of all that is in contradiction to his nature. And this wrath then broadly has a character to it that I would mention at least a few aspects of. His wrath then is necessary. It's a necessary consequence of holiness and justice. It's a necessary consequence of holiness, of justice. If there is no wrath, there is no holiness, and there is no justice. There is nothing right, essentially, in the world. Without the punishment of wrong, without the upholding of justice, there could be no moral order in the universe. There would only be moral anarchy and chaos, and with that, a sense of hopelessness. There would be no retribution for wrongs committed. There would be no answer for injustice of man. There would be nothing to account for the wrongs that are committed. It would simply be the the dark reality of a hopeless world. But when we understand divine wrath from a biblical perspective, it actually provides hope for God's people because it says everything right will be made wrong. Everything that is wrong will be brought to account and there will be in the future a time where again that promise of Isaiah 9 can come true that justice and righteousness will reign on the earth. As a matter of fact, it is that very reality and the necessity of it that gives hope to God's people and allows us to live under such abuses of what is good and right. Listen to Paul, later in Romans chapter 12, he says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for wrath, implication wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the first thing to notice is simply this, or the character of this wrath, is that it's necessary It's a necessary response to have moral order in the universe. It's a necessary response of hope in the midst of a world gone awry and enslaved to its sin and full of injustices. It says that things will be made right, and it will certainly be made right. God's wrath is also personal. Now, this has been hard for many to understand. God's wrath is a personal response against the personal rebellion of sin. In other words, wrath is not mechanical. It's not merely a cause and effect reality. It's not done reluctantly by God, even though Luther referred to it as God's strange work because his primary work is of grace and extending love. 
But nonetheless, it is necessary and it is personal. It is personal because sin is personal. Man is created in God's image and assigned with a task by God to rule over creation for his glory, to bring it under submission for the good of man, the flourishing of man, according to the purposes of God and the order of God for the glory of God. That's why we exist. That's why he created us. That's the task that he gave. It was created to be a blessing from God to man. It was designed Man was and God, man within God's creation for relationship with God. In other words, man was created in his image and then given a task for God's purposes and for God's glory. So to reject this command, to reject his blessing and his relationship is utterly personal. It is to turn from his words. It is to say the God who has spoken to me is the God I've chosen to, chosen to reject. It is to say the God whose image I bear is the God I refuse to submit to and to give my life to in obedience. So sin is a personal response. Sin is defined in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15 as rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion is personal. Rebellion is personal and so sin is against God. God's wrath is also universal. It's a necessary consequence of holiness and justice. It's a personal response of a God against personal rebellion against him. And it is also universal. All outside of Christ are in this condition. This is what is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is a universal condition. It is a universal reality. It is a universal condition and a universal reality for those who are pagan and uh, uh, forthrightly agnostic or atheistic or have some kind of pagan religion. It is as much a reality for those who profess some kind of religion, even some kind of revealed religion related to the Old Testament. I'm thinking of apostate Judaism here or Islam. Or even those who profess Christianity who are not truly regenerate. It's a, tr- it's a truth for all of them. For all of those who are outside and not truly in Christ. We'll look at more of that related to religion next week. But listen to some other ways that scripture defines this. When he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2 he says this. After describing those familiar words of man's condition and here speaking to the church and who they are outside of Christ. So he's saying here you are inside of Christ. You are those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Those who are redeemed in Christ have received forgiveness of sin. But before that moment and before this was the case, before you were raised up with him and seated at the right hand of God. He says you were by nature at the end of verse 3 children of wrath even as the rest. To say children of wrath, it is to say your very nature was the kind of nature that existing before a holy God could only provoke from him wrath, could only provoke from him judgment. He says the same thing in chapter 5, in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says the same thing in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. There are others as well, but let me read this. Colossians, chapter 3. Paul says this. 
He says, you know, speaking to the church, put away these characteristics of your sinful self. And he says in verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So the reality is that outside of Christ, outside of union with Christ, outside of being regenerate, outside of being a participant in all of the saving work of Christ, there is the condition of wrath. There is the condition of wrath that hangs over all men. One said this, and I quote, Thus Paul can forthwith use the wrath of God to characterize a whole order of existence, the old aeon, the old age, if you will. To live in this age and according to its nature is to stand under the wrath of God. It is to stand under the wrath of God. So God's wrath is necessary. It's a necessary response of his holy nature to sin. It is personal. It is a personal response of a God who made us in his image to have fellowship with him and to know him by relationship. It is universal. It stands for all and it's over all who are outside of Christ, whether pagans, religions, or whatever, but who have not truly been born again by the Holy Spirit of God and have a genuine union with Christ through faith and repentance and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Wrath is fourthly not capricious but a settled and controlled and certain reality of God. In other words, God doesn't just blow his top. He doesn't just lose his cool. He doesn't just freak out and get upset. It is to say that the wrath of God is born of intentional and eternal and infinite wisdom and power and purpose. It is intentional. It is not, a, it is not an outburst of anger, if you will. It is a part of God's settled determination. It is, we could say, a holy reaction under the full control of omnipotent power. A holy reaction under the full control of omnipotent power. And as an abiding reality already noted, it is this that hangs over all humanity at all times because of the constant provocation of man's sin. Christ himself warned of this repeatedly. Let me give just one example. In John chapter 3, right after we have that great statement that's held up at sporting events, which is a profoundly wonderful and glorious truth, we have this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That is his first coming, he came as savior. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. But here's the other part. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And then the end of that chapter, it ends with what are probably the words of John the Baptist. He says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The glorious truth is that God has sent the Son into the world to be a Savior, to be the hope of the world, to be the light of the world, 
but men love darkness instead. And so the wrath is abiding on all those who do not believe in Christ. John will say later in his epistle to not believe in Christ is actually to call God a liar. Is to call him a liar. Well, and Christ himself will be the executioner of this wrath at the end of the age. In Romans, Revelation chapter 6, he says this. We're getting there eventually. He says in verse 17, well, beginning in verse 16, And they said to the mountain, those who are receiving punishment by God, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide from us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? So Christ warned of this wrath. Christ will be the executioner of this wrath. But under this point, the controlled nature of it, the fact that God is presently restraining his wrath and his judgment until the point of time while he gathers in his own and accomplishes his purpose is a testimony to the controlled and the settled nature of it. God at any moment would be just and could justly let his wrath go forth to consume unbelieving humanity, but he doesn't because it's restrained. It's under the control of omnipotent power. It is a determined wrath. It is settled. Let me give you one example of this later in Romans chapter 9. It says, What if God, in verse 22 of Romans 9, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. And there essentially we have the same contrast that Paul begins this explanation with. The glorious wonder of the gospel, the glorious mercy of those who run to Christ as their refuge and as their hope and as their savior. And the contrast of that, those who have the wrath of God abiding on them. And who are just being patiently endured by God until he executes his holy response to them. So that's the character generally of divine wrath. What is the demonstration of divine wrath? What are the ways that this is shown? He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It is revealed from heaven. It is constantly being revealed. It is being revealed even right now. In what way is it revealed? How does God demonstrate this wrath? Well, it's revealed in a variety of ways. It's revealed, of course, in Scripture and His Word and the way that He acts within His creation and within the world, even through His people and, in fact, to His own people in as much as they sin. It is revealed at the very beginning in the opening of Scripture that explains to us why things are the way they are in Genesis chapter 3 when He said this, or when it's recorded for us, this, after the sin of Adam and Eve, after their hiding and shame and being clothed by God in a glorious picture of his kindness and of his redemption, it nonetheless emphasizes the ongoing effect of sin, and that is exclusion from God's presence. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. 
So he drove the man out, and at, and, at the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Which was to say, now that sin has entered into creation, man no longer has this access to God, but is in fact excluded, is relationally put away. There is... The reality then that those who are not in Christ are outside of Christ and therefore excluded from the life of God. That's exactly how Paul says it in Ephesians 4. Speaking of unbelieving Gentile world, of course this applies to unbelieving religious Jews as well. But he says this, they are darkened in their understanding, verse 18, being excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of of their heart. So one demonstration of divine wrath, of one response of God to sin, is to remove it from his presence, is to expel and put away those who are in the condition of sin. And just as a footnote to that, even among his people, this covenant people, Israel is a covenant nation. The very idea of the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood demonstrated that reality. That God dwelled among them, but he was not accessible. He was not accessible just because they decided to feel good and get close to God. No, there was only one way he was accessible, and that was through dealing with their sin through death. Through, in that case, the blood of a sacrificial animal. There was only one way he was accessible, accessible, that was through the priesthood. And that wasn't even all the time, but had a particular high and holy day on the Day of Atonement, in which the high priest went in and made atonement for the sins of the nation. That is a picture that was continually given to his people and through them to all of humanity, that this God is not approachable on man's terms. He is approachable by grace, by sovereign grace that he establishes in the way that he establishes in that way alone. And outside of coming in the way that he has invited and made that way possible, man is excluded. They are outside of the life of God and the reality of God's grace. Another way that it's displayed, divine wrath, is through destruction. Is through destruction. Now, there is, of course, death, the death that came that was introduced, and we see that actually is emphasized in the account of Genesis. So after sin entered into the world, uh, and then Adam and Eve were excluded from the garden, and then we have an example uh, in chapter 5 of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And so that's now the normal condition, not normal in terms of God's created purpose, but normal in terms of the condition of man under sin, of a groaning creation, that there is death. Death is a reality of this side of heaven. Implicitly in that too was the spiritual death and consequences because we immediately see the accounts of man living contrary to what is good and holy and righteous. You have Lamech with his two wives and threatening to kill and to do harm, even greater than the harm that God does for those who offend him. We see Cain murdering Abel just before that and all manner of wickedness outside of that. But here there is the reality of death and destruction. And the greatest way we see that is not only by that which was introduced into the human experience through sin. For death came through one man and sin spread to all men because all sinned. 
But there's also that destruction that would come specifically as a judgment of God. And we're only six chapters, as we're familiar with, into the book of Genesis, where God literally wiped out every single person on the earth except for Noah and his family. He says in Genesis 6, chapter 5, or verse 5, He says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it grieved his heart and there was no other resolution at that point that God had determined to bring about than to destroy them. Kill everyone. Now, sometimes, this is a footnote to this, uh, if, if we... We sometimes, people struggle with destruction and death that comes in the course of the world. But if we can own the reality of Genesis chapter 6, that that is the right condition and response of God for man, then every restraint of that is an act of mercy, and every execution of his judgment is only what is deserved and right. It's amazing he doesn't do that more than he does. But he says in verse 13, the end of all flesh of Genesis 6, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And so he did. He sent a flood. The floodgates of heaven burst and rain came down. The wells of water underneath the crust of the earth were opened up and water came up from underneath and all of men And women and all living things on the earth that were not in the ark were destroyed. And he gives an example as well. Many, but one that it was meant to be executed in such a way that it would leave an impression upon his people and all of those who knew about it. And that was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're familiar with that. Lot was there, Abraham's nephew. God went in request of Abraham to rescue Lot because God had determined to destroy the city. He sends an angel to rescue him and his family, and he does that against the most perverse sort of irrational lust as they're even blinded by the angel. Some of the men of the city and even incapacitated in that way are still seeking after the angel, it says, to have relations with him. Nonetheless, God rescues them and he rescues Lot and his daughters, ultimately not his wife, who looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. And then what does he do? It records for us in Genesis 19 and in verse 24 or verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. He destroyed it. So this wrath comes through exclusion, being removed from God's presence. It's displayed in the destruction that he actually brings upon the ungodly. It's displayed eschatologically. And that is to say, towards the end. In other words, all of this present age is actually leading towards one end. And it's not a glorious future of beauty. It's a time of destruction. It's a time of unparalleled in the history of humanity, sin run rampant without restraint and of destruction, which Jesus himself warned about, such as never come upon the earth, has never come upon men. 
And really, every judgment that God does bring about is an anticipation of this final judgment. He even says, we'll look at this next week, but because in verse 5 of chapter 2, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's also revealed by exclusion, by destruction, eschatologically in terms of what's coming upon the world, that final judgment that's going to come, ultimately ending in the second death and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he establishes his kingdom first by removing every rebel out of his kingdom and destroying them at the second coming of Christ. But also, it comes in the sense of abandonment. Now, we're going to talk about more about that in just a bit or later. And that is where God judges and displays his wrath, not certainly by exclusion, but not by destruction, but by abandonment and leaving men to their own devices. But also, let me give a fourth just to mention here. He reveals his wrath, in a sense, in the gospel itself. In the gospel itself. In one sense, in this way. The gospel is, of course, good news. The gospel is this wonderful news that his people have been entrusted with, that Paul said he's not ashamed of, that he said is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It is the good news of God's mercy. It is the good news of God's faithfulness. It is the good news of God's salvation. It is the good news of being reconciled to God. It is good news. It is the best news. But it is a news that has a background to it, which is what Paul is explaining to us beginning in verse 18. And so in that sense, the gospel that says this, that there is forgiveness in Christ, that in Christ you can be made the righteousness of God, you can have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, accounted to you, to your account. You can be counted as a son and a daughter. You can be a citizen of his kingdom. You can be a recipient and a participant in the inheritance of Christ forever and ever. That can be yours. But the reason that that is a message that goes out with urgency and with power is because outside of believing and outside of embracing the righteousness of God in Christ, there is only this wrath. And so in the preaching of the gospel, the necessary backdrop is to that is flee to him who can rescue you. Flee to him who can be a savior and who is the only savior from your sin. It is a rescue mission. He says in chapter 5 of Chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Much more then, speaking of those who have fled to Christ as their refuge, he says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, that is his atoning death, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. You might have it italicized in your Bible, the wrath of God, that's the implication. But it is the wrath. The wrath that is coming upon the world. You shall be saved through him. He says in verse 10, if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What is reconciled? Well, he just mentioned it. It is to be moved from an enemy of God to a welcomed citizen of God and his kingdom, a child of God. The redeemed of God, the purchased of God, the saved of God. 
the holy ones, the saints before God in Christ. But he himself says that the great glory of that rescue is that you have been saved from the wrath. You've been saved from the wrath. You've been rescued from it. I wonder how many people understand that as the message of the church. Now, there are other parts of the message to be sure. But how many understand that the significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in him and in him alone, man can be rescued from a very real consequence of sin. That there is hanging over humanity only the fearful expectation of judgment apart from running to refuge in Christ. We say that we want to use the opportunity of this holiday to witness to family. And there is, has been mentioned and observed often, something very unthreatening about a baby in a manger. But when we understand that baby is in a manger according to the eternal purposes of God, so that he could be all that he needs to according to God's design to rescue us from wrath, to rescue us from his own wrath, to provide for us a safe haven and a refuge from that which our sin rightly provokes from God. And the guilt and the burden of sin is not something that we necessarily feel. It is an objective reality. It is a legal reality. It is reality. And Jesus rescues us from it. And he alone is the refuge. He is the Savior. He is the Savior. And... We'll consider that over the next two weeks as well. We're out of time, but just by way of introduction, we're going to get past one verse at a time in the future. But just by way of introduction of the very concept, I want to lay this before us. How is it, and this is what we'll look at in slightly more detail next week, how is it that we understand what we see and how is it that we are to bring the message of God, of the glory of God's salvation in Christ to this nation. And part of it is to say that your sin is not an example of freedom. It's an example of enslavement that's going to bring from God the most significant and serious reaction of wrath and justice. But that in Christ there is a refuge. In Christ there is a Savior. In Christ there is reconciliation. In Christ there is hope. In Christ, there is the blessing of God. And that is the message that we want to give. But we need to give the full message. We need to give the whole message. We need to give it in all of its parts. The delightful parts and the unpleasant parts. Because both are necessary. And if we don't understand this reality of wrath... Not only are we just willfully ignoring what Scripture itself says, what Jesus himself emphasized as a part of, we learn, as you might well know, more about hell and coming judgment through the ministry of the one who is very incarnate love than from any of the prophets in the Old Testament or anywhere else. If that is the case and if that is true, then clearly Jesus himself wants us to know about this reality and to consider it for our good and for his glory. And so we must be willing to give both sides. And it is only against that backdrop as well that we can understand the wonder of this table. What do we celebrate? That he gave his body for us and that he spilled his blood. 
What do we celebrate? That in taking these elements and acknowledging our remembrance of the gospel, in proclaiming his death until he comes, in proclaiming our fellowship with him, we are saying we have run to Christ and found refuge in his saving purposes. In him. We have come and said out of all of the world that will be engulfed in the wrath of God in flames, we are the rescued ones, the purchased ones, the redeemed ones. And we have run to him and trusted in him who has borne that wrath for us. But that we'll talk about more later. Let me pray and then we'll prepare our hearts to remember these glorious truths in the table together. Our Father, how much of your word we can become so familiar with and forget the profound implications of it. Wrath is not pleasant for us to think about. Judgment upon the world is not a happy thought. But Lord, it is a true thought and a true reality. And it is against that reality that you have made very clear to us comes the wonder of your promises, the glory of your faithfulness, the magnificent, amazing reality of your salvation in Christ. Lord, how can we understand your cry at the cross? Or how can we understand the seriousness of your return? Or how can we know the mandate of our mission to be a light if we don't know what it means to be outside of you even as we rejoice being in you? So impress these things upon our heart that we might give to you the full glory of your name and of your purposes. Impress these things upon us that we might think wisely and circumspectly about this world. Help us, O Lord, not to be entertained by things for which Christ died. Help us, O Lord, to live with a deep confidence and joy in the one who has rescued us, even as you said previously in Romans chapter 5, that as we recognize these things and endure by faith, the trials you bring and prove our character, you also increase our hope because the love of God has been poured out through our hearts, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Lord, may we embrace in fullness the majesty and the wonder of your gift to us in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So the men will pass.